Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. Today we will be looking at verses 12 through 17 as we consider finishing well, pursuing peace and holiness. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray again today that you will empower both the, the preacher and those who hear the preaching of the word. And we pray that as your spirit works among us, he will show us again Jesus and him only. And that in seeing Jesus, our hearts will be enthralled that we will be energized to pursue peace and holiness. And we ask that you bring great glory to yourself in this next hour. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You read a passage like this, and the writer of the Hebrews has returned back to the theme again of the marathon, back to the theme of the, the race, uh, the race in the distance. He did that earlier in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, and so what we have here in Hebrews chapter 12 is the marathoner's grit and finishing joy are metaphorical of what we Christians, ancient and modern, are called to in this life. The spiritual life is a long-distance run. And through this long-distance run, we are going to hit the wall. Have you ever heard the expression, hit the wall? Maybe some of you have hit the wall. And that's where you become exhausted. You become fatigued uh, through either the experience of pain or suffering or struggle or relationships. There comes that time where we feel like we cannot take another step. That, that place where we feel like, uh, show me where to go to give up. I want to sign up to give up. I'm done. I have hit the wall. Which reminds me of a, of a marathoner named Art Carey who described his experience in the Boston Marathon in the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he talks about hitting the wall and then going on to finish the Boston Marathon. We pick up his story in mid-stride. Listen to this. 
By now, the rigors of having run nearly 20 miles are beginning to tell. My stride has shortened. My legs are tight. My breathing is shallow and fast. My joints are becoming raw and worn. My neck aches from all the jolts that have ricocheted up my spine. Half-dollar-sized blisters sting the soles of my feet. I'm beginning to feel queasy, lightheaded. And I want to stop running. I have hit the wall. Now the real battle begins. Up the first of many long inclines, I start to climb. One, two, one, two, one, two. Right, left, right, left, right, left. I keep watching my feet move, one after the other, hypnotized by the rhythm, the passage of the asphalt below, shoulder cramps, leaden legs, seething blisters, dry throat, empty stomach. Stop, keep moving, must finish. A radio listening spectator reports that the race is over. Six miles away, Bill Rogers has won again. His ordeal is done. The most intense of my own is about to begin. Heartbreak Hill. The last, the longest, and the steepest, a half-mile struggle against gravity designed to finish off the faint and the faltering. Hundreds of people stand along that hill watching urging the walkers to jog, the joggers to run, the runners to speed on to Boston. Slowly, ever so slowly, the grade begins to level out. The last four miles are seemingly endless. Some runners, their eyes riveted catatonically to the ground, trudge along in their bare feet, holding in their hands the shoes that have blistered and bloodied their feet. Others team up to help each other, limping along arm in arm like maimed and battle-weary soldiers returning from the front. Finally, the distinct profile of the Prudential Building looms on the horizon. I begin to step up my pace faster, faster, smoother, smoother, suppress the pain, finish up strong, careful, not too fast, don't cramp. I see the yellow stripe 50 yards ahead. I run faster, pumping my arms, pushing, uh, pushing off my toes, defying clutching leg cramps to mount a glorious last gasp kick. 40 yards, 30 yards, 20 yards, cheers and clapping, 10 yards, finish line, an explosion of euphoria. I am clocked in at 2 hours and 50 minutes and 49 seconds. My place... 1,176. I find the figures difficult to believe, but if they are accurate, then I have run the best marathon of my life. While times and places are important, and breaking a personal record is thrilling, especially as you grow older, the real joy of the Boston Marathon is just finishing. Finishing well. Because that's what you set out to do. And so the Christian life... What begins to drive us is the understanding that we are in a marathon and that we are running the race of our life. And all of us long to finish well. And there are three things that the writer of the Hebrews tells us that we need to do in order to finish well. And the first is found in verses 12 through 14. He tells us the telltale signs of flagging energy are drooping arms, flopping hands, and wobbling knees that reduce the runner's stride to a, a, a short gait. 
These signs were proverbial in biblical culture for a mental and spiritual slowdown. Isaiah encouraged his despairing, stumbling people by saying, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Job was encouraged by Eliphaz, the Temanite, who reminded him, Think how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. So here, the preacher, like a coach who's attentive, employs the proverbial exhortation. He says to us, strengthen our feeble knees, our weak knees. And the command to strengthen comes from a word in which we derive our English word, orthopedic. The sense is, make upright or straight, or in modern coaching terms, straighten up, get those hands and feet up, suck it up. That's what I really wanted to do for point one. Suck it up. That doesn't sound very religious, does it? Sometimes you just have to suck it up. Now, we have resources in the Christian life to enable us and empower us to do so, but I don't want to minimize the imperative here. He's not promoting a, a do-it-yourself, sola bootstrapist kind of Christianity, some sort of Nike theology that just says, just do it. But Christians must, at times, tough it out by God's grace. Life for the believer is full of repeated difficulties and hardships that come often as divine discipline. We've seen that already from chapter 12. In fact, these disciplines are substantive ways and signs that we are authentic sons and daughters of God. But they still require grit, every bit analog analogous to the determined marathoners we just read about. Muscular, muscular Christianity is a must. Run tough. Now, every imperative in Scripture which commands us to do something, to strive, to uh, exert ourselves, is always grounded in an indicative of what Christ has already done for us. So he does not command us to do something in our own strength, through our own ability. He tells us that we can draw upon his grace. We can draw upon the power of the Holy Spirit in order to run the race. And sometimes the best you can do is put one foot in front of the other and keep moving. But there are times where we hit the wall in the Christian life, and it is extremely important to hear this word of exhortation. The whole book of Hebrews, the whole sermon in the book of Hebrews, is in many ways an urging or an exhortation to endurance. To endure, to finish well. And toughing it out is essential. But there's more to the idea than just toughness because it's not just a solo venture. In the next verse, the writer alludes to Proverbs 4, 25 through 27, and he calls his people toward what I would call a corporate toughness in helping one another run well, make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. And so the idea here is uh, to clear 
to put paths in better order, and to make the race easier for the lame so that the lame may not be put out of joint. The point is, every consideration should be made to help everyone finish the race. And we heard that in the original illustration, the bloodied, the blistered Boston Marathoners teaming up to help each other, limping along arm in arm, is a vivid metaphor of what the church should be. You see, we we have this navel-gazing inward-turned idea of spirituality and sanctification that is totally devoid of loving your neighbor as yourself. How in the world can we be sanctified and ignore our neighbor? You can't be. The law of God is summarized as what? Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But don't make me love that neighbor, right? But the Christian life is corporate. There is a corporate dimension to it. We are a body. We are connected to one another organically. We are a temple of living stones built together. And we have a responsibility not only to run our own race, maybe we're uh, at the finish line and we can help someone limping along. We are responsible not only for ourselves but for each other. And so there is the duty of what I would call mutual help. Hebrews is full of this idea of our connectedness and our idea of helping each other make it. But encourage one another as long as it is called today so that no one of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We need each other in our lives. We need to be a community connected together, ministering to one another, praying for one another, being there for one another. Since the promises of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Let us therefore make every effort to enter rest so that no one will fail by following their example of disobedience. We want each one of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. Then also let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. I believe that the writer of the article on the marathon, Art Carey, is right in saying the real joy of the Boston Marathon is just finishing. And I'm even more sure that the real joy of the race set before us will be in the finishing, but there's a double joy. And the double joy is that we finish together. As we run the race, we must exercise the wretched curse of American individualism, a me-first kind of mindset. It's all about me. We have to look around. I mean, some of us are so miserable because we're so dead gum selfish. And that's why we're, that is our misery. And you know how I can tell I'm miserable? No, it's rare. No. But (laughs) you know how I can tell I'm miserable? Is people annoy me to no end. (laughs) And just being people. People being people. They're not doing anything to me, but they annoy me. What does that mean? That means that my heart has been curved back in on itself. As Martin Luther said, in curvatus, in se. The heart curved in back on itself and the more selfish I become the more miserable I become and the more isolated I become uh, the more critical I become of other people 
that I really have a responsibility to reach out to. If I'm, if I'm curved in on myself, rather than looking for ways to help you, I get aggravated with you. Why, don't, why can't they carry their end of the load? Why can't they put one foot in front? I'm doing it. Why can't they do it? That is totally missing it. Totally, totally missing it. I re- I'm repenting of it. We have to gut it out by God's grace, but we have to hang tough together. The strong among us must hold up uh, the, the dangling hands and wobbly knees of the weak with our prayers and our acts of mercy. Those who are strong must make straight paths for the weak by exemplary direction in their lives. The life of the, of the strong must keep the weak on the right road. Their lives never cause the weak to stumble. We have to run tough and we have to run together. And so that's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. Initially in this passage, finishing well is not just me finishing well. One of the, the great negatives of evangelical spirituality in its present form is it's focused on me and Jesus. It's all about me and Jesus, all about my holiness, all about things I do to be pure. And if you're not moved out of yourself to love either people, other people, what you have is not holiness. It is not holiness. Now, if that wasn't enough, (laughs) he tells us in the next passage to be at peace and pursue holiness. Or that is, run after peace and holiness. We're encouraged here to a dual pursuit, peace and holiness. By the way, these two are related extremely woven together. If you look at the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, comes, um, I believe, right before blessed are the pure in heart, which speaks of holiness. And so we make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy without which holiness no one will see the Lord. Our experience tells us that though we may have peace with God, we don't always have peace with men and women. Commitment to Christ certainly incurs the enmity of the world. If the world hates you, said Jesus, keep in mind that it hated me first. And that hatred of Jesus and his disciples, let's face it folks, it's coming out of the woodwork. Unless you live in a cave or you're a mole, (laughs) You hadn't paid attention lately. It is, it is the latest rage to speak ill of Christianity. I mean, it is mainstream. Persecution is now mainstream. And it is manifesting the hatred people have for Jesus. Nobody will ever admit to hating Jesus. But there is a lot of hatred toward Jesus. And so it's difficult to live at peace with people who hate your Savior. And if we follow Christ, we must expect conflict. But how unexpected and disheartening it is when conflict is encountered in the church. Isn't this the place we go to have peace? Why would we have estrangement in the church? But conflict in the church brings glory to Satan and disgraces our God. Few things grieve God more and impede the great race more than conflict. Paul told the church at Galatia, you're you're eating and devouring one another. What are you, a bunch of Christian cannibals? 
In the body of Christ, in fact, conflict in the church and the failure to pursue peace is the most public reason so many never finish. Satan too often infiltrates committees, elders' homes, manses or parsonages, paralyzing those who ought to be setting the peace for others. So as we run the race, we must pursue peace with all men, both Christians and non-believers alike. And the word make every effort or pursue is a, an aggressive term, very aggressive term. It's used in the sense of chasing after your enemies to persecute them. Think of Saul persecuting the church before he became Paul the apostle. We must chase after peace. Other scriptures enjoin the aggressive pursuit of peace, urging us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, isn't peace a gift of God? It isn't something we conjure up ourselves. It is a gift of God. But we appropriate that peace. We appropriate it. We make it our own. And we become agents in the world and in the church of pursuing peace. If it is possible, Paul tells us, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And then there's the beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Those who pursue peace, will to forgive, will to forget, and will to be kind and thoughtful and helpful to others, and even pray for their enemies. And so the preacher has linked the pursuit of peace, excuse me, with the practical emphasis on holiness, which has to do with purity of soul. And so there's peace and there's purity. By the way, we are already holy in Jesus Christ. We have been set apart. We will eventually be holy in all of our thoughts and being uh, body as well. Everything about us will be holy. And so what's he saying? He's saying, bring into the present time that which is already true of you. Appropriate the holiness of God. Well, how do we do that? Well, there are ways in which we do that. And Hebrews has listed them. I'll mention some of them in a moment. But character and peace are woven together as a single garment of the soul. Ultimately, it is a holy people who finish the race. It is they who will see God. What he's saying by that is, you don't see God and enter heaven because you have striven after holiness and because of that have reached a certain level to where God says it's enough, now you can see me. No. What he's saying is this, everybody God justifies declares to be righteous, gives to them the beautiful robe of righteousness of Jesus' perfect obedience and record, becomes mine as much as if I lived it, and he takes away all of my sin, the guilt, the shame, the stain of sin, and forgives me forever. Everybody who is declared to be forever under his favor and in a right relationship is at the same time driven to be holy. Are you? Is holiness something that preoccupies you? Are you really pursuing? Can you look at me in the eye and say, Pastor Tim, I am pursuing holiness. Really? Are you? With all of your being? Now, 
It doesn't mean that God accepts me because I have a passion and a pursuit for holiness. But what it does mean is my justification is only as real as my sanctification. Amen. Now justification is perfect in heaven. There's a righteousness imputed to us, but that there is a righteousness imparted to us in this journey of the Christian life, and we are to grow and develop it. And if you don't, you have no grounds at all to ever say that you are justified. Because they go together. You get the whole Christ when you get Jesus, you get the whole Christ. The one who justifies and the one who sanctifies. That's Jesus. You keep amen to me and I'm going to keep going. Let me warn you. We'll never vote. <laughs> All right, let me see how I can wrap this up. Well, he uses an example here of a pretty sad character. Let's, let's look in the text. He tells us, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he found... No chance to repent, though he sought it through tears. As the writer continues to talk about finishing well, <clears throat> he turns away from the positive admonitions regarding running tough, running tough together, running after peace and holiness, to a negative admonition, a warning about what we're to guard against. And the warnings come in three successive clauses. First, he talks about failing to obtain the grace of God, missing the grace of God. Grace is one of the divine attributes, and it's the attitude of benevolence in the heart of God toward his children. And an image of that grace would be like a pitcher brimming over pouring out blessing on us. The Apostle James says essentially this when he declares, but he gives more grace, literally great grace. Thus we confidently know that there's always more grace for the believer. Earlier in 4.16 he tells us, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And so the unchanging truth is, we can have no need that outstrips His grace. Or will we ever? Even if we fall into deep sin, greater grace is available to us. Paul says where sin increased, grace increased all the more. For daily need, there's daily grace. For sudden need, there's sudden grace. For overwhelming need, there's overwhelming grace. And how does this graceless come to afflict a child of grace well he tells us in our text through a root of bitterness and he gives to us the example of Esau Esau is a classic character who failed to obtain or receive the grace of God and let's talk about Esau for a moment because he's a pretty interesting character in many ways um, <clears throat> 
He was a man of appetites. Um, he was he was a, 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 the text here talks about him having sexual appetites and physical appetites as being immoral or godless. I might put it this way: he was a secular person who had um, a problem with instant gratification. And he was a beast of a man. He was, he was red. That's what Esau means. So he must have been red-headed. And he was kind of the man a beer commercial would be made for. That's the kind of guy he was. And he had um, testosterone uh, in <laughs> beyond testosterone. And so he was, uh, this is what Philo of Alexandria said about him. The hairy one is the unrestrained, lecherous, impure, and unholy man. And he said the day that he sold his birthright, he committed five transgressions, one of which was committing adultery with a betrothed maiden. We don't know that that's necessarily true. But Esau was a, literally the word is, pornos from which we get the word pornography. That's a pretty bad description. And subject to the whims of his tomcat nature, he was the testosterone man. And his essential sensuality made God quite unreal to him, as lust always does. This goes hand in glove with the second assertion regarding Esau, that he was godless. A man who had no regard for God, which is what a secular person is. God whose focus, uh, for him, his focus was only on physical pleasure. But you remember Esau's story in Genesis 25. He grew up a big, hairy, red-headed lout whose focus was on fun, hunting, food, and females. And Hebrews here asserts Big Red, that's what his nickname Edom meant, came in from the field hungry after hunting, found Jacob cooking some lentil stew. It must have been red too. Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. To which Jacob made the incredible proposition, first sell me your birthright, only to be followed by an even more incredible flip response. Look, I'm about to die. What good is a birthright to me? Unbelievable, old sweaty red chose a cheap meal over the divine promise. Esau was completely earthbound. All his thoughts on what he could touch, taste, and suck. Instant gratification was the rule of thumb. He was void of spiritual values godless. And in Esau's pathetic case, he went on to lose the birthright and the blessing. And so why does the writer of Hebrews include him? Because he's talking about the way any of us fail to finish well. And the way we fail to finish well is by allowing a root of bitterness to come up in us. Esau, after he was um, schemed out of his birthright blessing, became a very angry man, extremely angry. And his anger was what drove him. And he was very driven, he was very angry, he was, he was very bitter, 
He was very cynical about those things. And from a human point of view, one might understand that. But let's get at the root. I believe bitterness, the root of bitterness, is antithetical to grace. That the reason why some of us don't obtain the grace of God is because we've allowed a root of bitterness to come up. Grace is that which empowers holiness. Bitterness is that which destroys it. And bitterness is basically anger because I feel like some, somebody owes me something and they have taken it away. And that something that they have taken away that they owe me is what defines me. It is that which makes me, it is my reason for being. The more, you know, anger is really the flip side of love. The angrier you get, the more threatened you are that someone's going to take away something you love. Some idol that you've constructed in your heart. And so anger drove this guy. And you cannot be angry over what you owe and receive grace at the same time. They are totally antithetical, totally opposite in every way. Let no root of bitterness spring up. Grace and bitterness prevent each other. They are absolute antitheses to each other. They're like fire and water. And when you bring fire and water together, either the fire is greater than the water and it vaporizes the water, or the water is greater than the fire and it extinguishes the fire. But they cannot be together. Either your understanding of grace will put out your bitterness or your bitterness will keep you from understanding grace. That's why some people can't handle salvation by grace. Is because their bitterness is eating them alive. Uh, because of past injustice in their life. And they cannot coexist together. When Jesus was up on the cross, after he had paid the price for our sins, he said, to Telestai. It is finished. But it can also be translated, it is paid, because it's an economic term. What he's really saying is, I have finished the payment. Do you know what he did? I don't understand that much about hell other than what I read in Scripture, but I know this, hell is endless. What does that mean? It means that our debt to God, what we owe to God, is so great that we will never finish its payment. Let's not think about anything else for a minute. Let's not think of other questions you might have about hell, but just realize hell is eternal. What that is saying is your payment is never finished. Yet when Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, he finished the payment. That must mean whatever he experienced on the cross was far worse than what you and I could experience in hell forever. The only way and the perfect way and the absolute way for you to deal with people who owe you, how do you forgive people? How do you say, they owe me, but I forgive. They owe me, but I will let it go. They owe me, but I will not demand payment. You have to let what God, what you owe God absolutely beggar, absolutely overwhelm what they owe you in your mind. You have to say, look what he paid. He did not demand from me what I owed. It is finished. And here's the weird thing. If you demand payment from people, if you stick pins in their hearts, or if you just stick pins in them uh, in, your, in your own mind, 
if you avoid them, if you try to control them by saying you owe me, if you give little digs to them, if you give little digs to other people, if you say I've forgiven you, but it's really your way of rubbing their nose in it by your righteous mercy showing them how much better person you are than they are. There are hundreds of ways of making people pay. But Jesus did not make you pay, and if you try to make other people pay, it will never be finished. They will get more and more poor, and you will get more and more poor. And if you see Jesus saying it is finished, it is paid, then you can turn to other people and say, it is finished, I will not make you pay, he did not make me pay. You have to see Jesus dying like that, and if you do, it'll be over. It'll be finished. You'll be able to say, as he forgave me, I have forgiven them. Can you do that? A bitter person cannot. A cynical person cannot. And that's how you fail to obtain the grace of God. And that's what enables you not to finish well. There's not a single one of us in this building, if you have lived long enough and been around people long enough, do not have situations where it feels almost impossible to forgive. How do we let that go? As long as you're looking at that person and what they owe you and what they fail to do, you'll never let it go. But if you look at Jesus and what he did for you, that will empower you to receive his grace and give it to others. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. There's a whole sermon there. Don't have time. I didn't preach last week, so I want to preach two times as much. But I'm done. The writer to the Hebrews tells us to brace ourselves. Times you have to suck it up. You have to run tough. Second, you've got to be in pursuit of both peace and holiness. And third, you do have to be your brother's keeper. It's important to recognize the communal aspects of this truth. But finally, heed the warnings. Heed the warnings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. It is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it separates, it divides between the bone and the marrow. It gets to us as a critic of the thoughts and intents and motives of our hearts. And we pray that your word will work today, that it will work in me and that it will work in everyone who heard. And we pray that you'll bring glory to yourself because of it. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as people liberated from uh, our idols, that we have turned from them and turned to you, and now we give gladly, joyfully, and generously a portion of what you've entrusted us back to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.